Does picking an outfit have you running a little too fashionably late? We get it. Great taste takes time. That's why Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery, has your back with the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, delivered in under 60 minutes. Convenience never goes out of style. So if you need to spend some extra time in the mirror instead of at the store, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Rock is lit! Welcome to Rock is Lit, the podcast that takes listeners on the quest to find the very best rock novels and explore the propulsive energy and raw power of these stories about music, the people who make it, and the characters who love it. Rock is Lit is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm your host, Christy Alexander Hallberg, author of my own rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page, from Livingston Press. Find me on Facebook at Christy Alexander Hallberg and Twitter and Instagram at Christy Hallberg. Visit my website at ChristyAlexanderHallberg.com. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, follow, and spread the word. In this episode, Richard Fulco, author of the new novel, We Are All Together, is here to take us on a rockin' jaunt through the late 1960s, where we'll encounter several iconic players on the music and literature scene from that era. If you're a fan of the Summer of Love and all the trimmings that go with it, you will love this book. Later, renowned classic rock photographer Elliot Landy drops by to talk even more about the 1960s music scene, a period he should know a lot about since he's been photographing rock stars since the mid-60s. But first, we welcome Richard Folko. Richard Folko received an MFA in playwriting from Brooklyn College, where he was the recipient of a MacArthur Scholarship. His plays have either been presented or developed at the New York International Fringe Festival, the Playwrights Center, The Flea, Here Arts Center, Chicago Dramatist, and the Dramatist Guild. Richard's one-act play, Swedish Fish, was published by Hero Publishing, and his stories, poetry, interviews, essays, and reviews have appeared in the Brooklyn Rail, Fail Better, Across the Margin, Fiction Writer's Review, Gargoyle, The Daily Vault, and American Songwriter, among others. For six years, Richard wrote about music on his blog, Riff Raff. He teaches creative writing in English at an independent high school in New Jersey, and interviews writers for his five-question series at www.richardfolko.com. Richard's debut novel, There Is No End to This Slope, was published by Wampus Multimedia in 2014. We Are All Together, also published by Wampus Multimedia, is his second novel. Thanks for joining me, Richie. Hi, Christy. Thanks for having me. You're the host of the original Five Questions, which I love. It's such a fun series. In fact, I was featured on it after my novel, Searching for Jimmy Page, came out. Thanks for playing along with the Rockets Lit version. What's the first album or record you bought? Well, I really had to think about this one. <laughs> uh, it's been a while. Um, I know the first 45, believe it or not, it was a 45, that my parents bought. And my mom forced me to listen to it, and I despised. It was the Osmonds' "Puppy Love." <laughs> Puppy Love wanted me to love it, and I was a Jackson Five kid. Right. I did not want any part of the Osmonds. Um, but they they got cooler. My parents they bought me another five. <laughs> we grew up <laughs> we grew up in Staten Island, and we used to go shopping. Um, 
food shopping on Saturdays in New Jersey because there was no tax. So uh. we were at this place called Two Guys in Woodbridge. And I heard this song on the, the loudspeaker on the PA system. It was uh, the Steve Miller Band's Swing Town. And I, I was enamored with the drumming. Uh, I, I later found out it was Gary Malabar's drumming. I was hooked on the drumming. I loved it. Are playing, and um, it was a forty-five. I think it cost ninety-nine cents. Yeah, I remember the days. <laughs> <laughs> but that wasn't the first one that I bought. So the first one that I bought was a forty-five. Uh, okay. The Blues Brothers Soul Man. Uh, the Blues Brothers Soul Man. All right. Was it? Had you seen the movie? No, I was too young. So okay. I, it was nineteen seventy-eight. I was still a little kid. But I love the song. I don't think I even saw the clip on Saturday Night Live. I, I never even saw Saturday Night Live. And, um, but I went out and I bought the, the, the 45 Soul Man. And I just thought that, you know, John Belushi and Dan Arco, they were pretty cool. And, and then they had the, all these stacks players playing behind them, like Steve Cropper and uh, Donald Duck Dunn. Um, I just thought the song right. was great until I discovered the original years later. I was actually in a band that covered Soul Man, and I, ten years later, I did. I still didn't know it was the Sam and Dave song. Oh wow! And then I the original it was like wow. It was you know just blew me away. Nice. No, did you play guitar? I was a singer. Okay. Um, I played rhythm guitar, keyboards, jack of all trades, master of none. Got it. What was your most memorable live music experience? This was a great question. I mean, really <laughs> sent me down a rabbit hole. I went with my first one. I saw, I was at the Ritz and it was uh, in New York City um, on September 27th. I did the research, mm. 1990. Uh, and the Ritz was this little club. It's now part of um, Webster Hall, I believe. and. Goodbye Jumbo had come out. It was a World Party uh, record. And my friend Jimmy and I went to go see World Party, and we were big fans. We had no idea who the opening band was going to be. Sinead O'Connor was a guest, which was pretty cool, but we had no idea wow. who the opening band was. This band called Jellyfish. Okay. So Jellyfish came out, and they had a bubble machine going, and they had all these like kind of colors going on the, in the backdrop there. Like these just pictures of, of, of like psychedelic. It was very psychedelic. I mean, everything from their clothes to their haircuts. Wow. Uh, Robin Manning, who's playing keyboards, had a, uh, an umbrella that he would twirl. Every now and, then. <laughs> and Andy Sturmer was the drummer and the singer. And he played standing up and he sang. And they were, it, they were just, they just blew us away. Wow. Around. Harmonies were incredible. If you had the opportunity to interview an artist or a band, who would it be? And what's one question you would ask? I would like to talk to Roger Waters or David Gilmore, either one or both, and ask them um, when they were on tour in 1968 and they decided not to pick up their primary songwriter and singer and visionary, Sid Barrett, 
whose idea was it who said, should we pick up Sid or not? And who said, no, let's not. And, you know, I know they were, they felt really guilty about the whole Sid Barrett thing. So yeah, that would be, that would be a good conversation to have with them. I'd like to be privy to that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's what I, I would, I would talk to them. <laughs> What's on your playlist now? I just started a new teaching job and it's in Hoboken and I've been listening to my iTunes and, and, and it's like, wow. Okay. I was, cause I was working for a long time and I was listening to audio books and I was driving to work. Yeah. Um, so I was listening to recently Michael Penn, um, a lot of pop, like uh, alternative pop, I guess, from the, the late eighties, early nineties, mm-hmm. um, the early, the two, two, with, I'm not, the Smithereens, uh, Aladdin, okay. and especially for you. Um, so it was the first album, the third album. Matthew Sweet and Pete Yorn, and then Crowded House, Woodface, and then I recently uh, discovered. Uh, I'm a big fan of Wilco's, but I never really listened to Ode to Joy. I, I kind of just skipped past them. So Ode to Joy's been on there. Um, I've been listening to a lot of Cars lately. The Fall always reminds me of the Cars. And uh, Ray Charles, but um, I, but the thing that's really bugging me because I'm in my study right now and my receiver's not working, and I bought this vinyl of, uh, of Otis Redding, Dock of the Bay, and it's just like just taunting me. There, I can't do it because my receiver is not working. So when I get it fixed, that's what's going on the on the turntable. Sitting in the morning sun, I'll be sitting when the evening comes. Watching the ships roll in And then I watch them roll away again Yeah, I'm sitting on the dock of the bay Watching the tide roll away Which artist or band would you like to see featured in a rock novel in some capacity? Well, I really wanted to see the story of Sid Barrett And I really didn't... I'm not a... a tremendous Pink Floyd fan. The stories have always interested me. I had a student a long time ago who brought up Sid Barrett. I didn't even know who he was. I was teaching uh, a class and I was like, I, I better look into this. And the more I looked into Sid Barrett, I was just intrigued by the, the character. So I really, you know, that's what was the impetus of my book was, was Sid Barrett. Um, but other than Sid, I would love to see Lou Reed I can't tell you how many people have been on the show with episodes that haven't even aired yet who've said they want to see Lou Reed in a novel. So somebody needs to write that. <laughs> well, he's kind of a minor character in the book. Yes, yes, very minor. Let's take a short break and we'll be back with Richard Folco. And make sure you stick around for the last segment of the show when we're joined by Elliot Landy, who will share his memories of what it was like to be among rock royalty as a photographer in the 1960s. Back in a moment. Emily tries, but miss Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Understands. She's often inclined to borrow somebody's dreams till tomorrow. This is Richard Foco, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. Does picking an outfit have you running a little too fashionably late? We get it. Great taste takes time. That's why Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery, has your back with the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, delivered in under 60 minutes. Convenience never goes out of style. So if you need to spend some extra time in the mirror instead of at the store, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. We're back with Richard Folko, author of We Are All Together. So let's start with a synopsis of the novel, and I'm just going to steal shamelessly from, from the back of the book. It's 1967, the summer of love. When 21-year-old guitarist Stephen Kane's promising band falls apart, he is forced to move back home with his Christian mother. Unwilling to give up on his rock and roll dreams, however, Stephen flies to New York so he can patch things up with his former friend and bandmate, Dylan John, a pioneer of psychedelic rock whose band Red Afternoon is on the verge of making it big. When Dylan unexpectedly quits the band to be a civil rights activist, Stephen is handed the opportunity of a lifetime. Against the backdrop of a nation in turmoil, Stephen questions his dreams his parents' loyalties to a bygone era, his inability to choose wisely in love, and the unfortunate legacy of racial discrimination. Okay, so we've got the summer of love and religion and the civil rights movement and New York 60s music scene and then the San Francisco scene and an elusive musical genius in the form of 18-year-old Dylan John and a wannabe rock star in our protagonist, Stephen King. Woo, it's a lot. Tell me the origin of this novel. The origin of the novel, I think... Uh, is really about um, having been a musician and waking up one morning and looking in the mirror. I was around 26 and I realized that I just didn't, I didn't have it. (laughs) It wasn't going to (laughs) happen. But knowing like so many musicians who would do anything to, to just have a crack at some success, right? And how the, the desperation, how desperation sets in. I mean, 26 is a young person. And yet, you know, I was so desperate to get people down to see our shows. 
Um, I mean, we played CBGB and we, we couldn't get people down to see a gig, you know. And Well, geez, though, you played CBGB. We played CBGB, yeah, great sound, CBGB. <laughs> Terrible bathroom sound. Yeah, I went in there before they closed. And, and I, yeah, I agree. <laughs> Awful. The choices that we make, the decisions we make when we're desperate and how we will betray ourselves, we'll betray our best friends, we'll betray our lovers, we'll betray, because we just are so desperate to make it in the business. So I, I, I kind of went into the book with that in mind. Um, and Stephen is so, he can't compete with Dylan. Dylan is the genius and Dylan is the songwriter and Dylan is the impetus of the band. But Stephen could play guitar. He's just not the songwriter. He's the, he's the right-hand man. He's, you know, he's the guitar slinger. So he leaves Steve uh, Dylan at one point. He breaks up the their their act, and he joins a band that has a record contract and uh, management. And he just takes the money. So, and then when that band breaks up, then he's desperate. So he flees to New York to try and um, hook up with uh, Dylan. He's got a great name, Dylan John. Although his real name is Arthur Devane. How did he become Dylan John? He became Dylan John from having watched the Beatles on Ed Sullivan's show. It was before my time, but I've seen many of the clips. And, uh, you know, he was just, uh, you saw, and Stephen was with him when they when they watched the Beatles performing the Ed Sullivan show. And after that, they kind of cut their hair and, you know, the mop tops and they got the Beatle boots and the ties and the jackets. And he became, uh, John, but he was uh, Dylan <laughs> um, after Bob Dylan, um, and I I wanted Dylan to be a musician's musician. So you know he knew about Bob Dylan before anyone. He grew up in Kansas. Um, Arthur Devane grew up in Kansas before anyone in the old town knew who Bob Dylan was. Even before um, "Blowing in the Wind," you know, even a big song. So he was Dylan John. Before Dylan was really, <laughs> he created. I mean, the whole the book there were all these personas, and everyone had there's many characters with different names and names are changing. So he's Dylan John, but he was Arthur Devane. Uh, he was raised as Arthur Devane. And some of his antics on stage kind of remind me of Jim Morrison a little bit. Yeah, I had to tone them down because I, <laughs> I initially had you know the the, the infamous. Um, Jim Morrison um, episode where he pulls oh, no. <laughs> out on stage. And I said, no, I don't think Dylan would do yeah. that. Um, I was thinking more along the lines of what Sid Barrett would do. Let's hear a clip of Roger Waters of Pink Floyd talking about Sid Barrett on The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon. You know, there is a, um, a schizophrenia is, is uh, used to describe a, a, a loose um, kind of amalgamation of symptoms, of which many Sid had. He... You know, he heard voices and he had trouble um, keeping a grip on the reality of his situation. And on top of that, he did take, you know, too many hallucinogenics. Uh, I think if you were in the, uh, the position of being an incipient schizophrenic like he was, any hallucinogenics are a very bad thing. So, um, yeah, it was, it was very sad. And, and he sort of drifted away from the reality of, of the rest of our lives. And did you, Sadly. is the story true that you were recording, um, um, I think it was Shine On You Crazy Diamond, and, and, and a bald man walked in with a toothbrush in his mouth and no, eye, no eyebrows? Am I making this up? 
He did not have a toothbrush in his mouth. Okay, as good. Far as I recall. <laughs> that, that, I tried to make it funny. He did. He had a big bag of candies which he was eating, and 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 the story is true. If you've heard the story, that I had no idea who this person was, and this was my closest childhood friend. He yeah. he'd, he'd put on about a hundred pounds in weight. It was completely. I uh, just didn't recognize him. I think David eventually said to me, "You, you don't get it, do you?" And I went, "Get what?" And I looked over. And Oh my goodness! And I suddenly realised who it was. That's and we were recording the song that I wrote for Sid at the time in the studio. So it was a strange, strange moment. I definitely see some similarities between the character Dylan and Sid Barrett. What are some things that Sid Barrett would do on stage that were indicative of his deteriorating mental state? Sid Barrett apparently um, took the strings off his guitar while uh, during a performance. Um, Sid Barrett allegedly um, like banged his guitar against the mic stand during one performance of the song. Um, or he one time he didn't want to sing, so he just kind of moved his lips, and Madra had to fill in, you know, the blanks. And I don't know about there's a scene where he kind of pulls a um, Dylan pulls on a a rope, and like jelly comes. <laughs> Flying out. I don't remember if that was part of the the Pink Floyd folklore. If I if I made that up or not, I, I don't. I really don't, don't remember. The idea of fame and greatness and having it, capital I T, comes up a lot. There, Dylan is described as a genius and having it, and there are various other people. The character Emily, who is initially Stephen's girlfriend, but winds up married to Dylan is described as having it. She's an artist. And then there are several other characters, other people. What does having it mean to you? Well, I, I, I don't think it is something that's uh, innate. I think it is something that you work toward. And I think it is when um, you just, you, you know, as a, an audience member, you witness it. Or as a listener, you hear it, and um, it's just a an artist at the, the peak of their um, powers, and you, you, it's like there's no denying that that there's something there. You might not love it, you might not be moved by it, but there's no denying that um, you know this Sonny Rollins, who's a kind of minor character in the book, is. And he's on stage and he's just, you know, killing it. <laughs> he's even have to play a note and he's and he's killing it on stage. So sad to me is that Stephen's father and several others constantly tell him he's not great. You don't have it. What's interesting is that Dylan tells Stephen that the two of them together have it early in the novel on page 34 because he doesn't want him to leave the band. But Stephen leaves the band anyway because he thinks he can find fame and fortune with another band. But um, that that's like the only time that you get a sense that anybody was recognizing some sort of greatness in Stephen. Yeah, I, I mean, I when I played music, 
I, I that word never really entered my vocabulary. I never thought, uh, you know, I wanted to be great. And it was years later where I heard an interview with Bruce Springsteen, and he was talking about how he wanted to be great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know, he wanted to be a great lyricist, and he wanted to be a great songwriter. And I thought, oh, that's a novel idea. Um, <laughs> wanting to be great, you know, really working at your craft, get to that place of greatness, to have written enough songs to arrive at a place of greatness. There's no guarantee. There's no guarantee you're ever going to arrive at greatness, but you'll never get there unless, I forget, if it was Bob Seger or I can't remember if it was Roger McGuinn. I think maybe it was Bob Seger who said, you have to write at least 100 songs. And after you've written a hundred songs, then maybe you're, you're going to come across something that's pretty good. Mm. Um, I had never written a hundred songs at that point. So I was, <laughs> you know, I was working toward it. I never got, I don't think I ever got to a hundred songs, but um, yeah. And Steven, is, I think Steven thinks he's um, a great guitar player. Yes. But he's not great unless Dylan is a lot, you know, next to him. Um, he brings out the greatness in him. If there isn't, if there is any greatness in him, and and you know, this is I think chemistry is something that artists overlook. And I, I you know, I mean, I, I saw a clip of Axel and and Slash recently playing together. I'm like, yeah, that's that's it. It's Axel and Slash. I mean, like you guys need to be together. You know, that's you know, you go off and do your solo thing, but it's not Guns and Roses without those two. You know. Next. Yep, same with John and Paul and the Beatles. Yeah, and, and, and one of the things about the Beatles is that they knew that. Absolutely. You know, they knew that as young yeah. men. They knew it as young men. And, and John didn't want to be Johnny and the Moondogs <laughs> or whatever. Right, it was going to be, we're a band and we're four parts. And, you know, and such credit to them, such, you know, young men knowing that, like, we have something here, but we I mean, no leader. We're, we're all going to be, you know, driving yeah. the ship. So there are several interesting themes that run through the story I want to talk about, and I'm just going to take them one by one. The first one that struck me was the idea of the American dream, that that sort of myth that Americans like to believe. And Stephen certainly does. He buys all of that whole thing, hook, line, and sinker. But the American dream and racism in America kind of go together in your novel. And Stephen is is kind of in denial about the latter and has sort of a skewed view of the former. So talk about Stephen's concept of the American dream during the first part of the book, because he does evolve. Yeah, I was just um, looking at uh, buying tickets for Death of a Salesman, and it's going to be um, Wendell Pierce. It'll be a black cast for Death of a Salesman. I don't have to see it. And I think it was from Death of a Salesman where I studied that play um, about the American dream. And the one thing that Willie misses in that play is that it starts with um, hard work. <laughs> um, and then there's no guarantee that you're ever going to accomplish the American dreams. I don't think Stephen is um, willing to do the hard work. Um, Dylan is. And... Um, so what is the American dream? I mean, I, I, I mean, does it, does it exist? And one thing that we've kind of been dealing with over the past, you know, dozen years or so is that, you know, there's the summer of love and then there's, you know, a long, hot summer. Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, you know, the white narrative is the, the summer of love. Black folks know it as, 
in long hot summer. I mean, there were a hundred more than a hundred plus riots during that, yes. that summer. And you know, Stephen's kind of oblivious to all of it. There's a, a section where Stephen is talking with Curtis, who's an African American man who works the front desk of the Y in New York where Stephen is staying. And they're having this whole exchange. And Stephen is is saying, oh, Muhammad Ali is a draft dodger. He's a coward. And Curtis's view is very different. And what Stephen has to learn that he doesn't know in the beginning, because he does buy into that whole, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And if you just work hard, anybody in this country can have their dreams come true. And what he finally comes to realize, after a lot of schooling from several people, is that the playing field is not even. And that was what he was not understanding. So the American dream is not necessarily attainable for everybody. Yeah, I mean, you know, that Muhammad Ali, his quote, and I, I, I won't paraphrase it, you know, I can't speak for Muhammad Ali, but he, you know, his quote was like, why am I going to go fight in Vietnam when I'm, you know, I'm in chains here yeah. and I'm trying to fight here, right? Yeah. My conscience won't let me go shoot my brother or uh, some darker people or uh, some poor hungry people in the mud for big powerful America and shoot them for what? They never called me nigger. They never lynched me. They didn't put no dogs on me. They didn't rob me of my nationality, rape and kill my mother and father. What I'm gonna shoot them for what? How can I go shoot them? Them little poor little black people, little babies and children and women. How can I shoot them poor people? I would just take me to jail. As a, a white man, you know, I, I don't know if I really understood that when I was younger. And now I, I like to think that, you know, I'm limited in my understanding, but I'd like to think that at least I'm trying to understand that people have different experiences in this country. It's not the same experience for everyone. Changing gears a, a little bit. With the racism comes toxic Christianity. Stephen's mom is very Christian. Then there's the whole Jolly Jokesters cult, which reminded me of Charlie Manson and the family with the whole idea of the race war and the character Helios, who's the leader of the Jolly Jokesters, used to be a musician, as did Charlie Manson. So there was that kind of symmetry there. But I mean, that idea of, of toxic, extreme religious views, kind of hampering progress, especially in terms of women's rights, LGBTQ rights, and addressing systemic racism, it, it all felt very timely. So there was a lot that I appreciated about your book. I, I thought it had something to say about the current situation, not just 1967. There's something wrong with when, when an adult doesn't question uh, a, par a parent's uh, beliefs. So if you just accept religion because your parents are practicing Catholics, there's something wrong. I mean, you, you should at some point in your life say, is this for me? Is it, I mean, it, it might work for mom and dad, but I want to, I'm not sure. Let me see. And and if you do the research and you, you know, you go to church and you, you read the scriptures and you, you know, then okay. But if you just accept things because that's the way it's been and that's the way it is in your house, then I think that's, that's a very problematic. And that's, that's the case with Stephen. So, you know, he just takes his father's word, you know, I mean, hitch your wagon to the star, you know, if Dylan's going to make it, you know, go, you know, go with him. And then, you know, then there's another band pops up and there's an opportunity. Drop that deadbeat <laughs> Dylan John and, you know, that, that hippie, that flaky beatnik, I forget what he calls, and, join, and, and get into the band Cloud Nine because, you know, like, so 
you know, he's, he just listens to his dad. And then, and then there are, it's, it's really a mentor, you know, you're looking for, I think musicians and artists need mentors and, and, and they need honest, supportive mentors, not Brian Jennings, not, not the mentor, you know, that, that, that Red Afternoon has and not the father that, that Stephen has as well. And Dylan, I mean, um, I mean, alcoholism is something I write about extensively and addiction and, um, and how it interferes with, with relationships. So yeah, there are, there are a lot of fathers and, and Helios, as you mentioned, is, you know, he's father and lover to his followers and, and, um, you know, he is, um, Charles Manson, like, uh, character. I kind of, I, you know, I, I, I was thinking about him. I was thinking about Manson. And I was also thinking about Ken Kesey and the, you know, the Mary pranksters. I want, I wanted that to be some like kind of menacing, you know, I wanted Helios to be menacing, but I also wanted to, there to be some of this like wacky, merry prankster, you know, shenanigans that also ensue. I love that they have the Kool-Aid that they're passing around. So you definitely think of the merry pranksters there too. Let's talk about the title. We are all together because I'm flashing on the Beatles song, I Am the Walrus. I am he as you are he as you are me and we are all together. What's the significance of the title? First of all, I love I Am the Walrus. I always love Me too. Song. Just, you know, lyrically, just like when I heard it as a young musician, it just blew my mind. It opened up, you know, po- you know, so poetic. But it was also John, like just putting words together and you know, doing John things. And, you know, so you hear that line and it almost like reflects like um, all you need is love and you know, flower power. And here we are, we're all together. And, and of course we are, we are all together in this great big mess, chaos, right? That we're, we're, we are together, but there is some irony to it. Are we really all together? I, and, and, you know, like we mentioned, you know, the past six years or so, this is, we're in a very, uh, very polarized. Um, Absolutely. Let's talk about some of the iconic figures that Stephen encounters in this book. You're talking about Stephen wondering, is this art or is it just performance art? He kind of has that reaction when he sees the Velvet Underground with Nico at the right. factory, when he encounters Andy Warhol. He's not very impressed. That whole scene is amazing. And I think it's a, a I don't know, I think it's a two-parter because eventually... Dylan and Emily wind up making a film for Andy Warhol that winds up being kind of, oh, how do I put it? Sort of porno-like. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, but so there's, there's Stephen in there encountering all of these folks. And, and then we have Red Afternoon playing at the Monterey Pop Festival, for God's sake. Right. They're playing at the Monterey Pop Festival. 
So he's sitting next to Mama Cass in the audience and watching Janis Joplin and Big Brother and the Holding Company perform. And I love what you were saying earlier about, you know, when you see a live performance and everything is working and with the audience and the artist and it's a spiritual experience, that's what he feels watching Janis Joplin. It's like a spiritual experience for him. How was it writing in all of these real events, real people in a fictional situation? How difficult was that? Or was it just freaking fun? <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> I, I just put myself in situations where I, w- I would like to have been, right? Yes. I, who doesn't, who wouldn't want to be at Monterey Pop Festival when Janis Joplin comes out and blows everyone away? Damn right. You know, it was a coming and up. And sitting next to Mama Cass. And and then, you know, like, I, I don't remember what, I don't remember if Otis Redding was on this that, later that night, but, you know, he, he just like, he it was his coming out party too. So you have like, you know, Janis Joplin and Otis Redding was like, uh, unfortunately for a red afternoon, they have to go on after, you know, Janice. Yeah. I mean, I've watched Janice, you know, many times that performance, it was just otherworldly. She was just tapping into something that you only tap into on occasion. You don't always tap into that. And she just did it. You know, she had it that night, you know, in a clip that I, that I watched, I think Mama Cass. You see her just saying, wow. Exactly. Yeah. You see her saying, wow. You don't hear it, but you know that's what she's saying. And the look on her face is like, I'll be goddamn, what did I just see? Yeah. And that's probably what everybody was thinking, because most people hadn't seen Janice at that point. Right. And she didn't have a record deal right. at that point. Right. Came after that. That's right. Yeah. It on, on, you know, on the heels of that performance. And, mm-hmm. you know, so like, in, so Lou Reed in, in The Factory, I was... In, Picturing when I first started writing this book that either Stephen or Dylan, one of them or both of them were going to be in this band that was like really kind of underground. Um, everyone, you know, in 67, the popular music was, you know, are you going to San Francisco and the you know, flower power stuff and psychedelia. But I wanted that beginning punk. So with every new form of of uh, of art, you always have your detractors, you know. I mean, Andy Warhol was paint, you know, doing soup cans, and people were like what? So Stephen's walking through the factory, and he's looking at this art, and he's like, you know, I could do this, you know, like is this is this art? If I could do it, is it art? And and you you know you often you often hear people say that, like I could do that, you know. I remember being at a, a Tom Petty concert, and this guy behind me was talking to his girlfriend. And Mike Campbell was playing some riff, and he's like, "I can, oh, gosh, you hear that? I yeah. can do that too." And I'm like, and I, I remember start, turning to him like, "Dude, but you're you're over here, you know, you probably can, but he's up there doing it, you know, like." <laughs> so, like when he encounters when Stephen encounters Lou Reed in the factory, you know, Lou's talking through his song, doing his you know vocalizing, and he's singing about heroin, you know, and Jesus' son, and and like. And, this is way beyond um, Stephen, who doesn't really have a 
kind of poetic bone in his body. He's not a poet. You know, he's a guitar player. And so, like, the guitar playing isn't, you know, he's nobody's shredding. Nobody's playing any kind of solo. And, and it's just a very long, kind of monotone, drawn-out kind of tune with Lou, you know, all dressed in black, and he's very somber. And he's, you know, and it's brilliant. And, and Yeah, it's brilliant. Gonna try for the kingdom if I can Cause it makes me feel like I'm a man When I put a spike into my vein Stephen is also hanging around backstage with Eric Burden and Pete Townsend, which is cool too, at Monterey. And they're having, you know, conversations. It's just really cool. And then you find out, oh, Procol Harum opens for Red Afternoon at another show. <laughs> oh, and then the kicker, Jan Winner, <laughs> starting up Rolling Stone magazine, interviews him. And boy, that interview does not go well. Yeah. It's, you think, gosh, that was, that was a, a tough interview, Jan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, you, a lot of people, you know, like you mentioned, you know, Pete Townsend, I, I don't know how old Pete was, but I mean, it was also, Monterey was also like the, you know, the Who's coming out and, mm-hmm. you know, Hendrix was, you know, reached a, a, a larger audience and, you know, like uh, Goldie Hawn is backstage. I mean, these are all very young, very young artists, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and they're like shaping the world and, 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 and expressing themselves and and influencing folks and and reaching people multitudes of people like Stephen's only 21 and Dylan's you know 18 then he turns 19 and I don't know how much of awareness you know an 18 19 year old really has a, you know on what they're what they're doing I mean they're performing they're having a good time they're trying to write music they're trying to tour and and and, and meet people and put out records and, and record and but everyone i mean andy Warhol was 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 certainly a little older he had more experience but we're talking about very inexperienced folks who are just discovering the world you know and that's why you know steven is like of that age he's of that generation and he is not quite you know i mean he's when he busks, he, he's playing like popular music of the day, which is which was also great. I mean, he was playing you know, Aretha Franklin and the Young Rascals and and things like that, which is also great music. But to be challenged to to like, okay, we're going to take you to a different type of music and here's some poetry. And and Emily does that, you know, she opens up yes. art, and because of his experiences with her, he meets all of these people. One of my favorite parts in the novel is when Stephen encounters Neil Cassidy, yeah. who is the inspiration for Dean Moriarty in Jack Kerouac's classic beat novel, On the Road, which is one of my all-time favorite books. Stephen also meets beat legend William S. Burroughs in that section. So Dylan John loves On the Road and takes his band's name, Red Afternoon, from that novel. And it comes mm-hmm. from an excerpt where the main character, Sal, in On the Road, is in Iowa and he's sitting in a hotel room and he sees the red light and he's thinking about who he is, where he's been, where he's going. I gather that struck a chord with you and inspired you to name the band Red Afternoon. So what does On the Road mean to you? I was in a band that I mentioned, the band was called Outside, and we changed our name to Red Afternoon. And then, yeah, and then we broke up. <laughs> so that, that name has been around for 
you know, almost 30 years mm. in my head. And I read, um, I read the book around 30 years ago. I think I read it. And when I was done, I reread it. Yeah. And, um, of course, you know, Sal's a great character. I probably identify more with Sal than I do because I'm a writer than I do with, with uh, Dean. But I mean, if you're going to go partying, you're going to call up Dean and <laughs> where he's going that night. You know, the Neil Cassidy thing just that wasn't planned at all. And once I had Neil in the book, I was like, well, he's got to go see, you know, William S. Burroughs. And then William S. Burroughs and his history of, of addiction. But then I also discovered that, you know, Paul McCartney was interested in Burroughs' poetry and his cut up. Album mm-hmm. put out, yeah, and then McCartney actually loaned uh, William S. Burroughs a, a musical equipment so he could do his cut ups and his music. I thought it was, I was like, wow, all these connections to the Beatles. Um, and the Beatles, you know, that they, they're really large presence in the book, so I, everything kind of comes back to them. I mean, you know, Jack Kerouac and On the Road is a jazz book, right? Kerouac didn't like, did not like the hippies, he was a jazz guy. So my experience of on the road is it, it shaped my life. It, it changed my life. It did something to my writing and to my point, my point of view and my approach to writing and to reading. Um, then I taught the book a few times and it always, always reaches one or two students who just can't put it down. And they just are, you know, his spontaneous prose just, just does a number on them. And they, like me as a young reader, and um, so, I mean, Kerouac, I don't know if I'd ever want to hang out with Kerouac because he, I couldn't keep up with him with the, you know, the, the drinking. Richie, you said in an interview I read recently, I'm obsessed with music. I've been more influenced by three-minute songs than I've ever been by a teacher, a preacher, a friend, Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist, or anything like that, which I get. When did your obsession with music begin? Uh, immediately. When I was five, um, you know, I, I was always writing lyrics, just like melodies and lyrics. And my 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 parents listened to a lot of um, old rock and roll, so that was what I heard in the house. I heard um, old rock and roll, doo wop. I heard um, I listened to Frank Sinatra. Um, my dad listened to a lot of classical music, and there was a lot of opera in my house. And I, I liked all of it. I, not the opera so much, but uh, the classical music and the and the rock and roll and, and Frank Sinatra. Actually, I really love Frank Sinatra. Oh yeah. But yeah, that's when that's when it began. It began when I was five, and um, was writing lyrics and poetry, and then um, just like playing guitar, learning how to play guitar, and then I would say probably when the um, the Monkees had their run. And they came back. Remember, they, they yes. kind of came back on in reruns. Here we come, walking down the street. We get funniest looks from everyone we meet. Hey, hey, we're the monkeys. And people say we monkey around. But we're too busy singing. So I didn't see them in their original, you know, 67, 68, those years. I saw them. The show came back on MTV in the late 80s, and that's when I watched it. Late 80s. I think it might have been earlier, 
Um, because I was young, I was really young, and I was Mike. Yeah, because I think it it did. You're right. It did come back in the late '80s because they kind of reunited and they went on tour and they were you know the four of them. Um, but I, I mean, I owe a lot to the monkeys. I I I love them. Hey, folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. And on that cheery, happy monkey's last note, Richie, thanks so much for being on the show. Keep up with Richard Fulco at his website, richardfulco.com, where you can purchase a copy of his books, including his new novel, We Are All Together. You can also find him on Twitter and Instagram at Richard Fulco. Don't go away, because after another short break, we'll be joined by celebrated music photographer Elliot Landy. Over bridge of sights to rest my eyes in shades of green under dreaming spots to Ichiku Park that's where I've been what did you do there I got high what did you feel there This is Elliot Landy, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. That cold case you're listening to? Nasty stuff. But you know what else is a crime? Missing even a moment of whatever you're doing to go on a drink run. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered in under 60 minutes. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. We're back with more Rock is Lit. I'm excited to welcome Elliot Landy to the show. Best known for his classic rock photographs, Elliot Landy was one of the first music photographers to be recognized as an artist. His celebrated works include album cover photographs for Bob Dylan's Nashville Skyline, the band's music from Big Pink and the band album, and Van Morrison's Moondance. He's also taken portraits of such rock icons as Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, etc. He was the official photographer of the 1969 Woodstock Festival. Since 1967, Elliot's work has been exhibited in galleries and museums worldwide and published on covers of major U.S. and international magazines and newspapers, including the New York Times, Life, Rolling Stone, and the Saturday Evening Post. He has published 11 books of his photographs, including the band photographs 1968 through 1969, which was the highest Kickstarter-funded photographic book in history at that time. He's also the architect of a new app, LandyVision, which blends still and moving imagery with music to create a new type of interactive sound and visual experience. And Elliot has a new book out entitled Photographs of Janis Joplin on the Road and on Stage, featuring 129 photos, including 100 unpublished accompanied by Janice's own words from recorded interviews by David Dalton of Rolling Stone magazine. 
Welcome to Rock is Lit, Elliot, and congrats on the new book. Thank you. That was a really nice introduction. It covered, it, it covered all the essentials. <laughs> oh, well, you're quite impressive, and you, you've had quite a career. Elliot, as you know, the focus of this episode is Richard Fulco's new novel, We Are All Together, about an aspiring musician in 1967. And we're going to talk about your experiences as a rock photographer during that very time period. But first, let's get a little of your backstory. In the early stage of your career, you were photographing New York actors. You landed a job as a photographer at the New York Film Festival at one point, which led to a gig as a photographer on a Danish film that took you to Denmark, your first time out of the country. And you found your first real success there. In fact, you could have stayed on in Denmark and worked on more films. How did you go from that to returning to America to take pictures of musicians, especially musicians who, like many of the folks who make cameos in Richard's novel, became icons? I decided I was going to go home and do something about the Vietnam War. So I came home uh, to New York, and I still had the apartment. Um, and I started photographing peace demonstrations and, and tried to show the pictures. Like I had some photographs. There was one against South African diamond mines and the police. And there was a man on crutches who was one of the demonstrators. And it was a very peaceful demonstration, not a lot of people. And the police came and just started pushing everybody around and then chasing everybody away. And they and and this guy on crutches couldn't run very fast. So they caught up with him and they beat him to the ground and they were hitting him while he was on the ground. So I had photographs of that, just, just a few, but they would hit me also actually. And I took them up to the Associated Press, which is the uh, news syndication for newspapers all over the world, thinking that, well, they would be interested in these pictures. And they weren't at all. And they said, no, we don't use the, these kind of pictures, something like that. You know, they didn't want to report. So what happened was that eventually I tried to take them to other, other you know, papers and places that would publish them, and nobody was interested. And I, I started working with a, an independent newspaper, uh, uh, Underground. It was, it was like a community newspaper called West Side News. And, and they would then publish the pictures that I took at these demonstrations, um, in their newspaper, um, and of course they were all politically astute and really into stopping the war as well, even though the newspaper wasn't meant to do that. Um, so uh, that was where really my first pictures were published in in this uh, the West Side News, and in the beginning they were publishing the pictures themselves, and then after a while they started to crop them and they started to put them together, like just like a small grouping of them and not how I wanted my pictures to be published. So anyway, I found out about another newspaper called the rat subterranean news underground. They were underground newspapers. So I was taking pictures and getting really nice double page spreads. And I became the photo editor and, and I was really able to publish the, what I felt were my best pictures there. So that was great. So one night after we put the paper to bed, they were, their office was on in the East Village of New York City. And I was walking on the street and I saw a marquee, a theater marquee that said Country Joe and the Fish. All right. And underneath it, it said Light Show. I said to the, my friends there, I said, what's that? And they didn't know what it was either. Sam needs your help again. He's got himself in a terrible jam. Way down yonder. 
prisoner in Vietnam. So put down your books and pick up a gun. I'm gonna have a whole lot of fun. And it's one, two, three. What are we fighting for? And I had my camera bag with me. I walked over to the box office to just find out what it was. And I heard the music coming from inside when I walked over, right? And I asked what was happening inside. And, and I had a, 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 the paper had New York City press passes, which allowed me to go to these demonstrations and not get hit by the police and to stand where I wanted to take pictures. And after a while, after, after a number of demonstrations, they did start hitting photographers also. But at, at that point, they hadn't started that yet, the police, I mean, you know, pushing photographers away and then hitting some. So anyway, so I showed her the press fast, so she let me go in. And I, I walk in, and in front of me is this incredible light show, this beautiful, which I'll explain in a minute, and then this rock music, Country Joe and the Fish rock music. And it was a, it was a, the experience I'd never had before. And what a light show was and was like a f four or five people uh, standing behind the stage and doing different things. They were doing whatever they wanted to do, keeping time with the music. So some had a, a, a movie projector that they were projecting films, and some had a slide projector, and some had the, uh, these oil um, uh, overhead projectors, they're called, where you mix, uh, you have one, you mix oil and water, like colored oils and colored water and in a plate, and you tap the plate up and down on the, on the light source and to, to keep time to the music. And all these things were, and they had two or three of those people there, and everything was getting mixed up with each other. So really what you were having were visual musicians that were playing light, light, experiences with with the music and it was really incredible it was to me much stronger than today's uh video shows that they that they create that uh -huh. are so perfect was part of it is that it wasn't perfect part of it was the ups and downs so one part was really working and one part didn't work and somehow that's a nicer experience than having something perfectly synchronized at every moment um so I was uh, I was in the back to start with, and then I wanted to get up close to see the musicians better. So I took out my camera. So I don't know if I was really inspired to take the pictures or inspired to get close to the music at first. So I took out my camera and then started taking pictures when I was up front. And that's how I started doing rock and roll photography, just by chance, really. My goodness. And, and then uh, that was at the Anderson Theater. New York City. And so then two weeks later was the next concert. And the next concert was Janis Joplin. Oh my gosh. Was Big Brother in the Holy yes. Company starring Janis Joplin. She wasn't the star then. She was part of the band. And so I went to that. And um, because I had the camera after the show, they just let me go upstairs to the dressing room. There That's were no incredible. guards there. And, yeah. So, so I got up to the dressing room and there was Janis and the guys in Big Brother and, and a couple of other people. Uh, Ed Sanders was there, um, you know, different music people. And I was, when I photographed and still do that as much as possible, I don't like to be, I don't like to engage with who I'm photographing. Uh, I'd like to let them be who they are and capture that in some way. So when I was in the dressing room, I didn't introduce myself. I didn't say anything. Maybe they said, who are you photographing for? something like that. And maybe I said the rat, which I'm sure they had no idea what that was. 
So I was what they call a fly on the wall. I didn't get in, in the way. And I got friendly with them from, you know, just talking slightly to that. And a few weeks later, they had a gig at the Fillmore East in New York City, which uh-huh. was one of Bill Graham's uh, theater, first theater yeah. in New York. And that was opening night of the Fillmore East. So Big Brother was playing and Tim Buckley and... and oh, uh, love Tim Buckley. And Albert King. Me too. I loved... I really loved Tim Buckley also. I lit my purest candle close to mine Window hoping it would catch the eye Of any vagabond who passed it by And I waited in my fleeting house Before he came... What a voice. So I got fr- friendly enough to hang out with them a little bit, and we were taking a cab home one night. We were all sharing a cab, and Janice and two or three other guys it was one of these big New York cabs that can seat five people at a time in the back, you know. <laughs> um, and they were going to a party, and they asked me if I wanted to come with them, and I didn't for some reason. I don't know why. Whoa. And, and Janice also, she didn't want to go either. And she said, just drop me off here and I'll see if my friend, she had a friend in the city. I'll see if my friend's there, but I don't really, you know, she was like just going there because she had no place else to go. Mm-hmm. And she said something like, it's, it's, more, it's more accurate in my book. It's something like, here I am, famous, and nowhere I want to be, something like wow. that. Nowhere I want to go, yeah. And very, she was very lonely. Um, and, uh, if you, my book is Woodstock vision, the spirit of a generation. And if anyone that wants to get it, it's, it's available on, it's still available bookstores and Amazon and Barnes and Noble online. Um, but get the hardcover version only the, because I first published that book, Woodstock vision, the spirit of a generation in a soft cover in 1994. And then in 2009, redid it, uh, as a hardcover version with a lot larger photographs okay, and double the size because I put in a second section of a book about the Woodstock Festival that I had done in 94. I reprinted the text from the book about the Woodstock Festival with my own pictures of Woodstock. Mm. Um, so anyway, it's Woodstock's vision, the spirit of a generation, hardcover version. Since you mentioned Woodstock, let's stay with that. You were the official photographer there, for goodness sakes. I mean, that's on everybody. That would have been on everybody's bucket list. I guess so. (laughs) So, I mean, you had all-access entry that allowed you free reign to basically memorialize the largest rock festival of all time. How did you get that gig? Well, I had done photographs of the band Uh uh, that were pretty well-respected and well-known in the music business. I did the music from Big Pink album and then, and then the, out, the band album. I think the band album was after Woodstock, was, was before Woodstock. And then the, Nash, the cover, a picture of Bob Dylan yeah. on the cover of Nashville Skyline. And um, I, when I started photographing, I photographed the band and then uh, Bob asked me to photograph him for the cover of the Sagling Post magazine. 
Um, and I was living in Manhattan at the time. I had that two-room apartment I told you about. Yeah. Still. And I had started becoming successful as a photographer, making some money from it. Um, and I was looking for a larger place to live, um, a bigger place. And at the same time, I was going up to Woodstock as well to either do some pictures with the band or hang out or or, or do some work with Bob. Uh, and I, I realized as I was looking for a place, a larger place in New York, that I felt more comfortable in Woodstock. I had more friends there, more people I knew. And I liked it up there better, of course. And also there was the element of being connected to these people. So there was there was work. I didn't think of it as work, but there was there was a photographic opportunity would be better yeah. up there. Um, that wasn't why I went up there, though, at all. But it was like there were all these little extra things that it was really, you know what it was? It was really that I liked the vibration, the feeling of being upstate in Woodstock, New York, which is where I live now, actually. It's a very special place. So I um, was introduced to Michael Lang. My sister had a friend. She was, my sister had moved to Woodstock also. And she had a, a friend who was going out with Michael Lang. And one day we were in the village square and my sister just introduced us all casually like that. Uh -huh. um, and then I got, I, I saw Michael a few times here and I didn't know what he did at all. Uh, just smiling and talking to each other. I don't remember what we said. And one day he called called me up and he said, I want to talk to you about something, you know. And I said, okay. And he rode up onto my house. I had a house at the end of a dead-end road in Woodstock. And he drove up on his motorcycle. And he said to me, I'm producing a concert. And I'd like you to photograph it for me. Mm. And I said, who's playing? You know, by that time I had been pretty successful mm -hmm. already with the band and Dylan. And I had done some other album covers also. Um, and I felt like I could choose what I did. I wasn't interested in just photographing anything. Yes. Um, like I would have been in the early days when I hadn't had much experience doing it. So I said, who's playing? And he named some of the famous <laughs> groups. And I said, yeah, that sounds great. Like that. I said, yeah, sure, I'll do it. Um, and he said, all right, I'll call you when I'm ready. Or, you know. So I didn't hear anything for a few months. I don't know the exact amount of time between him asking me to do it and actually getting back to me. But at some point, he got back to me and he says, okay, come on, we got a place uh, that we're going to do the festival and I come take pictures. So he drove me out to the place in Wallkill, the first field that they rented to do the festival. And we're not allowed to. The town took out, refused to give them a permit. Uh -huh. So they couldn't do it in Wallkill. So I have pictures of Michael driving a tractor and a barn with the sign Woodstock Festival <laughs> on the original field in Wallkill. That's how I became wow. the official photographer. What I call the official photographer was Michael asked me to do it for him. And and uh, th then it was also Henry Diltz uh, was asked. I don't think Michael knew him before the festival, but he had, but some of the people who were producing it or, you know, asked Henry to come out. So really there were two two people who were officially there for the festival people, myself being one. But Michael, but my my role in it really was that the reason that, I say the reason Michael moved up to Woodstock, but the reason Woodstock got known was because Dylan and the band lived there and they were building a recording studio. The band, Albert Grossman, who was the manager for Bob and for Janice, and yeah. We had Janice and Richie Havens and Peter mm -hmm. Paul and Mary, Gordon Lightfoot. 
were, were doing, uh, was building a recording studio. So a lot of people moved up there, and Michael was one of the people that moved up because Woodstock was a music mecca uh-huh. at that time. Now, he never said that, but um, but I know that's the situation. I was talking to him, and I point. So, uh, and, and my photographs were the only photographs of the band and Dylan at that time. So nobody had a visual idea of Woodstock or of them other than the way they looked in my pictures. So I feel that contributed uh, to the to the truth of what Woodstock was. Woodstock was an artist colony since nineteen was since nineteen oh one, but it was an artist. The feeling in the land, in the hills, and the valleys, was very free. It was a very special, spiritual place. And spirituality leads to artistic expression. Yeah, when you're someone is a true artist, they're expressing something in some medium, which comes from a deep place within. To be alone with you Just you and me Now won't you tell me the truth Ain't that the way it ought to be To hold each other tight I love this quote of yours To capture a flickering moment of joyous experience and share it with others that was the reason I began photographing in the first place. And that is still the reason I take pictures today. So let's talk about yeah. capturing a flickering moment of joyous experience. Take me back to being at that Woodstock Festival those three days. What was that like as both a photographer and as a human being? Were you aware of how amazing this was? I was not. Um, nobody was. I mean, no, I was aware of how amazing it was, yes, but I wasn't aware of its historical yeah. significance. That's what I mean. Nobody realized that, that 70, 50 years later, it would be the defining moment of American history. And my point for the way I look at life as a spiritual progression, uh, Woodstock, the way people treated each other and what happened there was a spiritual moment in time. But that half a million people under dire circumstances, I mean, it rained, it was cold, it was muddy, uh, and it was cold until they dried off. I mean, and there was there could have been not enough food there, but uh, people at the hog farm uh, fed everybody. It's a beautiful story. What we have in mind is breakfast in bed for four hundred thousand. Now it's not going to be steak and eggs or anything. But it's going to be good food, and we're going to get it to you. It's not just the hog farm either. It's like the Ohio Mountain family and the pranksters and everybody else that has volunteered and put in their time into the free kitchens. In fact, it's everybody. We're all feeding each other. And the and the two guys, John Roberts and Joe Rosenman, who financed it, they were. They had trust funds. They were inherited their money, and they invested in Woodstock as a money-making venture. Also, something nice to do, but they made choices to pay the bands and make sure the festival went on, rather than just close up shop and walk away from it. Um, and they risked their own fortunes to do it, um, which was how spiritual is that? You know, without their self-sacrifice and the willingness to to lose everything. It wouldn't have happened like that. 
because of the film. It would have been forgotten, not forgotten, but not really known except for the film. So if you see Woodstock, try and see the very first version of it. The 1969 documentary directed by Michael Wadley, no matter how um, you know how long they made it, it's really worth worth seeing. It's an amazing experience. any any last thoughts about your time as a rock photographer i know it wasn't really all that long it was only a few years two or three years my intention was not to photograph rock and roll people and not to make money i needed to make money from it but it was not to make money it was just to share the spirit of the new culture of a culture that allowed freedom of of self-expression the idea of the 60s, to share the 60s culture, the idea of the 60s was to do your own thing, which meant which meant to find out what you wanted to do and then find a way to do it in life rather than doing a job that you didn't like or just did only for the money. And and assuming the assumption, the underlying assumption was that if, if everyone does their own thing, that we'd all fit together and it would make a good world. And smoking grass was also a visionary thing to do. You were able to really tune into yourself and really have fun, certainly a certain kind of fun and freedom. And a whole lot of the music that we all love, loved and still love comes from people who are high and, and, and being inspired by it. Um, and that was very illegal in those years. But you would go down to the Fillmore and people would offer you a joint and, and everybody was connected to each other. And my intention, my feeling when I was publishing those photographs was that I was proselytizing for a new culture, for a new way to be, for a new way to experience other people, uh, to, to reject the culture that had brought us the war and, and, and racial uh, prejudice, bigotry against women, you know, the whole uh, the way, the, the way women were treated by men, uh, not all men, of course. So, so that's what I felt like I was doing was was showing the 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 richness and the beauty of Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison and and Janis Joplin and these wonderful and the music and light shows and and so on. But to bring people into this culture, come down and try it out. You know, be part of this thing. Elliot, thanks so much for being on the show and for sharing your memories of such a turbulent but in so many ways magical period in time a period that Richard Fulco does a great job capturing in his novel We Are All Together. Pick up a copy of We Are All Together at your local indie bookstore or wherever you buy books. Find out more about Elliot Landy at his website, www.elliotlandy.com, where you can buy all of his books, including his book on Woodstock and his new release, Photographs of Janis Joplin on the Road and on Stage. You can also find Elliot on Instagram, at Elliot underscore Landy underscore photography. In the spirit of this episode, peace and love to all you groovy lit listeners. Oh, and drinks are on Pearl.
Stay tuned for upcoming episodes of Rock is Lit to hear from more great rock novelists and special guests who will offer commentary on the music or musical events featured in these novels. If you like what you hear, subscribe, follow, and spread the word. And check out the Rock is Lit vault on my website for news, bonus material, and outtakes from episodes. Until next time, keep rocking and reading and getting lit. Rock is lit! It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.